What if everything you thought you knew about the criminal justice system and high-profile criminal cases wasn't true? What if the mainstream media was too corrupt and compromised to tell you about it? Join a veteran Buffalo City detective, a veteran Canadian Pacific Police captain, and a veteran NCIS special agent, along with special guests as they dissect the criminal justice system and high-profile criminal cases from their perspective in an unedited podcast focusing on crime, corruption, and media bias. It's Search Warrant, a new podcast coming right at you. It's Search Warrant, and we're back. This is John Snedden, veteran NCIS special agent. Our co-hosts, Detective Anna Midlars and Police Captain Tom Purcell, are on the road today promoting Tom's book, The Art of the Dog, available on Amazon. Our guest today is Dr. Frederick Cruz, who has an amazing academic career. Uh, Dr. Cruz is an American essayist and literary critic and is a uh, professor emeritus of English at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Cruz was a uh, prominent participant in the Freud Wars of the 1987, uh, 1980s and 1990s, a debate over the reputation, scholarship, and impact on the 20th century of Freud, who founded Psychoanalysts. Analysis. Uh, Dr. Cruz has published a variety of skeptical and rationalist essays, including book reviews and commentary for the New York Review of Books on a variety of copies, including Freud and uh, Recovered Memory Therapy, some of which were published in the Memory Wars in 1995. Uh, Dr. Cruz has also published successful handbooks for college writers, such as the Random House Handbook. Uh, Dr. Cruz completed his undergraduate education at Yale University and he received his PhD in literature from Princeton University. Dr. Cruz joined the uh, University of California Berkeley English Department subsequently, and uh, where he taught for 36 years before retiring as its chair in 1994. And going through uh, some of uh, Dr. Cruz's uh, previous interviews, I found uh, we found a uh, a quote which uh, particularly pertains to what we're going to talk to him about today. And I'd like to read that quote. A quote, it says, uh, general rationality requires us to observe the world carefully, to consider alternate hypotheses to our own hypotheses, to gather evidence in a responsible way, to answer objections. These are habits of mind that science shares with good history, good sociology, good political science, good economics, what have you. And I summarize all this in what I call the empirical attitude. It's a combination of feeling responsible to the evidence that is available, feeling responsible to go out and find that evidence, including the evidence that is contrary to one's presumptions, and responsibility to be logical with oneself and others. And this is an ideal that is not so much individual as social. The rational attitude doesn't really work when simply applied to oneself. It is something that we owe to each other. Uh, Dr. Cruz, welcome to Search Warrant. Thank you, John. I'm really glad to be with you. 
It's a pleasure to have you. And uh, just going through your uh, your academic achievements, it's uh, mind boggling. I wanted to ask you, we're, we're going to focus on your um, your recent uh, uh, articles, uh, particularly, San, you know, with the overall title of Sandusky, the House of Cards. So how did this whole case come to your attention? Well, it came to my attention very directly through Mark Pendergrass, who, of course, wrote the most important book about the Sandusky case, uh, The Most Hated Man in America, uh, Jerry Sandusky and the Rush to Judgment. I became acquainted with Pendergrass back in the 90s when I had occasion to review a book of his on the recovered memory movement uh, called Victims of Memory. And I found it to be among the best, if not the best, uh, book on that topic. And we became friends and we worked together, um, you know, politically to oppose the horrors of sex abuse memories taken seriously by, by courts without, right. without any corroborating evidence. So in 2017, <coughs> Pendergrass came out with this book on Sandusky and he himself, as he mentions in the book, was drawn to the topic by a tip he received from a woman in Oregon who said, do you realize that the Sandusky case has a recovered memory aspect to it? And he started looking into this and he found it to be true. He was fascinated and he devoted himself for several years to this book, which was an unbelievably unpopular thing to do. Yeah. And he tried every major publisher, finally had to settle for a small press in central Pennsylvania. The book was almost never reviewed, and even today, it's largely unread, although you can get it on Amazon easily. That, that was the entry point for my um, interest in the Sandusky case. But I found out, as Mark himself did, that there are many, many other suspect aspects of the case that could lead one to question the almost universal belief in Sandusky's guilt. So what I really wanted to do with the essays I started reading, started writing on Sandusky was to take the collection of facts, which were very meticulously uh, uh, compiled in Pendergrass's book and to turn them into an explicit argument. Pendergrass doesn't actually argue that Sandusky is innocent. He leaves that just that leaves that door just a little bit open, but it's perfectly obvious what he does believe. And what I try what I've tried to do in several essays is simply take all those facts and marshal them in a, in a reasonable way to show where they seem to lead. And of course, where they seem to lead is directly to Sandusky's innocence. I, I understand. Now, Mark, uh, Mark Pendergrass's book is the the most hated man in America. Is that right? Right. Now, you're um, am I correct in understanding that Sandusky, the House of Cards, which appears on medium dot com, right? Yeah. Um, is like a overarching title for uh, several articles that you've written. Am I right on that? Well, that's not exactly right. Um, that's a very long essay that I wrote that tries to look at the case from every perspective that I can think of. 
Um, it's much too long for to be seriously published in a magazine, which is what I aspired to. And so when I got a little bit of a nibble from a couple of magazines, I wanted to condense it. I wanted to make it much more accessible to readers. So the ultimate condensation of that article um, is one that uh, I almost got published last July. Yeah. Called Saint Sandusky question mark, and that's up on Medium too. So we on Medium now you can find one little piece by me explaining how my piece did not get published, uh, and another one called Saint Sandusky, and then the much longer one called Sandusky the House of Cards, which ah uh, okay nobody needs to read both of those either one will do. But the point is. St. Sandusky is only about the question of whether or not Jerry is innocent. Whereas oh. Sandusky, the House of Cards, tries to look at the whole political and social framework of the case. I understand. Now, could you take us through, you had uh, um, alluded to the fact that you had several entities that were interested in publishing that, but then uh, it took on a life of its own. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, well, there was one major magazine that came pretty close to publishing one of my essays. I won't go into that. Uh, I did succeed in getting one essay up on the website of Skeptic Magazine. And that was the first thing I did back in 2018. But um, when they published, when they promised uh, pre-publication, of that article, it never came out. And the reason it never came out was that they got a tremendous storm of protest from readers and from their board of directors, so on and so forth. So the article was just killed. But last December, December 2020, I was contacted by an editor at a magazine of religious opinion called First Things, basically a Catholic magazine. Um, the editor wanted me to write about something else, and I said, actually, I'm not the person for this, but by the way, everybody who writes to me has to read the stuff I wrote on Sandusky, so here it is. And she, it turns out, had read Pendergrass's book. Wow. And, and she was already, you know, half convinced in, in the thesis of my essay, so she said, we'll do it. Uh, but of course, you'll have to condense it greatly, because that was... I gave her the long version. So right. we, we spent six or seven months uh, honing that article down to the shape of St. Sandusky. And to my surprise, she succeeded in convincing her senior editor there and the entire staff of the thesis of my article. We, we had a whole, whole slew of magazine editors who believed in the innocence of Jerry Sandusky is, is absolutely unique. So the article was supposed to be published in print and online around July the 5th. And by the previous day, the board of directors of the magazine had said no. And this was a group of, this was a group of influential Catholics who had absolute censorship control over the content of the magazine, and they simply killed it. And they killed it on the grounds that the Catholic Church was already in plenty of trouble over pedophilia, and they didn't need any more discussion of that. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So, I mean, this was told to me. I mean, I have an email proving it uh, from the editor. I find it very scandalous, but I also find it very ironic because the church has gotten in a great deal of trouble by trying to cover up pedophilia. It's bad enough. Yeah, exactly. It's to happen, happen. But when you cover it up, you make it worse. And here's another cover up. Just, right. They just instinctively want to keep you from knowing about it, which is exactly the wrong attitude. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. That must have been uh, crushing for them to say yes and then turn around and say no. You know, I, it, it was crushing for me, but it was also crushing for the editors. They were shocked. They were they really felt humiliated by this. Yeah, I think I guess once you say, yes, I'm in and then have to backtrack, I guess that's really, yeah. you know, it takes a personal hit. I'll tell you that I, I insisted on getting a full fee for the article and I gave it to the Jerry Sandusky Defense Fund. Awesome. That's great. Uh, when you I, I, I would really like the, uh, you know, our audience to take the time to, as you um, suggested, read St. Sandusky. So I don't want to go into it piece by piece. But, you know, if you think about what you've written, um, is there any particular thing that you think is most compelling or do you think it's a totality of circumstances? Well, the public, of course, is 99.99% convinced of Sandusky's guilt. What the public remembers, ironically, is chiefly the little boy in the shower, the, the McQueary incident, uh, whereby supposedly Sandusky was, was seen raping a 10-year-old boy. Um, ironically, the jury didn't convict Sandusky on that charge. It was just too old and there was too much contradictory wavering testimony involved in it. So that, that's a kind of funny aspect of the Sandusky case that what he's most hated for is something that he was never convicted for. But then there were plenty of other cases that came up at the trial, you know, eight, eight accusers and also another story about a janitor who had supposedly seen Sandusky molesting a boy. It's very, very hard to know where to begin attacking uh, such a such a scenario or even whether one should begin attacking it. But one thing that people might start to notice is that the case has some very strange, unexplainable aspects to it. Um, I'm going to read you I'm going to read you a sentence that Malcolm Gladwell wrote in 2012, right after the trial, when he was, of course, agreeing with everyone else that okay. was guilty. And he said of Sandusky, here was a man who built a sophisticated, multi-million dollar, fully integrated grooming operation, outsourcing to child care professionals the task of locating vulnerable children, all the while playing the role of the lovable goofball. Huh. Now, if yeah. you think about yeah. that for a minute, this makes Sandusky one of the most ingenious and cunning and at the same time brazen criminals in the history of the world. 
he convinces thousands of people that he's just a simple, good-hearted guy who likes, who, who enjoys having fun. And all the while, by founding a charity which helps thousands of boys uh, stay out of trouble and straighten out their lives, what he's really doing is collecting a relatively small number of boys for his own sexual satisfaction. You would have to say, my God, what an organizational genius he is, but also what yeah. an uh. hypocrite he is and what tremendous powers of persuasion he has because according to this scenario, he has molested thousands of boys, not a single one of whom has ever told anyone about it, never complained. Indeed, when we come down to the, to the eight accusers in the trial, we find boys who remained friends with Sandusky right up until the time of his indictment. They loved Sandusky. They cultivated him. He took them to football games. They had family friends. He went to their graduations. He went to their weddings. There was no indication whatsoever that they harbored any hostility to him, much less that they were molested by him. And then look at this. We're talking about teenage and, and preteen boys here, heterosexual boys. So far as we know, none of them were gay. What is alleged by about four out of these eight boys? It's alleged that they were raped orally and anally over and over again by Jerry Sandusky, often in his own house, often in his own basement, okay? Now ask yourself, can you imagine a, a boy of 12, 13, or 14 having been viciously raped and going back for more, making appointments with the rapist to do the same thing? In some cases, there are hundreds of alleged sex acts between Sandusky and these boys. Why did they do it? How can you explain it? When some of them were asked how they can explain it, they said, well, uh, I don't, I didn't remember it at the time, but I remember it now. Uh. All of this is just in incredibly phony. It's obviously phony. So if you start, if you start to ask questions about things like that, in my opinion, what you should do is go back chronologically and try to reconstruct the series of events that led to these accusations. And that's what I that's what I do in the long essay called Sandusky, the House of Cards. It begins right. with the earliest episodes and goes right through. And here's what you find. You find that the main accuser, Aaron Fisher, did not believe that he had been molested by Sandusky in any way. He believed that he was tired of Sandusky's company. He himself was approaching the age of 14. He happened to be sexually active, heterosexually active at the time. Sandusky was still treating him in this paternalistic way, trying to straighten him out, help him in his life and so on. And and he was uh, yeah, affectionate, affectionate toward Fisher as he was affectionate toward all of these boys. Fisher said to his mother, maybe there's something a little creepy about this. Maybe there's something sexual about it. And his mother, Dan, Dan, uh, uh, Dawn Fisher Daniels, who was her name at the time, immediately conceived of the possibility of getting Sandusky indicted as a 
as an active pedophile. And she said to her neighbor at the time that she's going to make a million dollars off Sandusky, that she's going to own Sandusky's house. The neighbor remembered those words and quoted them at the trial. Okay, Fisher didn't agree with her. He didn't. He said, I, was, I wasn't molested. But what happened to Fisher was that he was passed along to social workers. He was passed along to the police. He was passed along to a recovered memory therapist. And over a period of about seven months, he was gradually and reluctantly persuaded to say, not necessarily to believe, but to say that he'd been sexually molested by Sandusky. Fisher was a terrible witness. He was a terrible accuser. He was he changed his story so many times. He backed down so many times. Two grand juries refused to indict Sandusky on the basis of his testimony. So what happened? The next important thing that happened was that the McQuarrie thing came to light. Ten, ten or so years before, an assistant football coach named Mike McQuarrie found Jerry Sandusky in a shower with a boy, briefly glanced at what they were doing from a different room, completely misunderstood what was going on because it was simply the usual kind of towel-snapping games that Sandusky inadvisably, but nevertheless innocently, played with these boys. And when the prosecutors got hold of McQuarrie, they twisted his story into saying that he had actually seen a molestation. He had not, and he had never said that he had seen it. He'd said that he'd seen horseplay. So, all right, you have two witnesses, neither of whom are any good. Fisher's not credible, and McQuarrie is not credible. So what do you do next? At this point, the prosecution was absolutely committed, irreversibly, to nailing Sandusky. So what they did was to try to round up other accusers. And eventually, they interviewed hundreds of ex-members of the Second Mile, the charity that Sandusky had founded. Almost, almost unanimously, what they got was praise of Sandusky and gratitude towards Sandusky. But a few people, three or four, said, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I was molested or maybe there's something a little fishy here. Because by that time, it was apparent to them and to some lawyers that there could be a huge payoff involved in nailing Sandusky as an active pedophile. Uh. So what the prosecution did was to combine the bad testimony of Aaron Fisher and the misrepresented testimony of Mike McQuarrie with so-called confessions from 20-year-olds who had never remembered being molested by Sandusky, many of whom were still on very good terms with Sandusky, but who now saw an opportunity to enrich themselves by saying, well, yes, Sandusky did molest me. That, in a nutshell, is the case against Sandusky, except for the business about the uh, janitor who, who witnessed somebody molesting a child in a building on the Penn State campus. It turns out that the janitor in question never thought that that person was Jerry Sandusky. So we have a case with no evidence whatsoever. There is nothing left but the testimony of people who were pressed by therapists, lawyers, police, and prosecutors to perjure themselves, frankly. Right. I think that's a, uh, 
very succinct um, summary of where that case is um, and how it came to be. Um, and it's appalling. It's absolutely a, uh, you know, a every aspect that you've covered, you know, an overview is uh, um, indicative of a uh, egregious miscarriage of justice, obviously. I mean, these guys um, with no contemporaneous reports of abuse, there's no evidence. Some of their stories um, don't hold water. Uh, Jerry had never had a vehicle like that, for instance. Um, and then you've got the other aspect of, you know, a state college is a, not a huge city. It's a town. And to uh, accomplish what uh, accomplish what he is alleged to have accomplished without anyone in that small, very uh, connected town, without anyone coming uh, uh, to the belief that something was going on is uh, amazing. I mean, you know, it, 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 uh, and and then you combine it with the uh, which you know very well the uh, memory therapy uh, circumstance, along with uh, you know in in my view, and I think it it fits very much with with your view that it was uh, and you've explained explained your your um, aspect of it. Uh, I would say it's a you know. They had a predetermined conclusion, um, and they certainly did everything they could to develop things that would fit into their predetermined conclusion by, to some degree, reverse engineering of what they, the faulty information that they had. Clearly, uh, McQuarrie, a totally uh, not not credible human being, and even he tells the uh, prosecutors that that's not correct. That's right. But, uh, you know, what really bothers me, I, you know, I, can you, when you think about the prosecution of this case, I mean, what do you, what is your interpretation overall of, of the prosecution of the case? I mean, is it, you know, do you think, do you think they had a, uh, you've indicated that, that they pretty much had a you know intended result do you when you look at what they did during the course of that trial i mean can you kind of characterize that <laughs> well let's let's go back before the trial let's go all the way back to late april of 2011 this is 14 months before the trial um, that was uh, a period in which the prosecutors were already convinced to go ahead with the prosecution no matter what happened, but at the same time, they, they were spinning their wheels. They weren't getting anywhere. What did they do? Uh, they got in touch with a young cub journalist named Sarah Ganim for a Harrisburg newspaper, and they started leaking information to her. But it wasn't real information. It was their take on the Sandusky case. And it was all these sensational accusations about how he had 
founded the Second Mile only to molest these kids, all the horrible things that he'd done. Her articles were picked up in the national press and all the media, and within a few months, Sandusky was already the most hated man in America, and he had not been indicted. So the prosecution was already committing felonies. By, by, May, by May of, of 2011, they were committing felonies by deliberately leaking their own contributions to grand jury proceedings, which were absolutely supposed to be secret. And it went on from there. Um, when they finally, when they finally uh, indicted Sandusky on November 4th, 2011, on the next day, they set up a hotline to get more accusers. They, they, set up a, they set up a phone line to solicit people to say they'd been molested by Sandusky. And of course, they, the, way they, the way they released the whole thing in November of, of 2011 was unbelievably sensational and unbelievably inducing, inducing a panic the kind of panic that resulted in the in the almost immediate firing of Joe Paterno. As soon as as soon as this indictment came out, Penn State went into this paroxysm of guilt and accusation. Paterno went down, Spanier went down, Curley and Schultz went down, and there had been no trial of Sandusky. There had been no trial of his peers, jury of his peers, to decide whether or not he was guilty. His guilt was absolutely assumed, and the prosecutors did everything they could to get that foregone conclusion into the public's mind before a trial ever took place. So, and then the trial itself was a, a complete mockery, of course, a complete mockery. In the first place, it was a rushed trial, and the reason that it was rushed was probably in order to uh, save the next football season for Penn State, uh, to get Sandusky out of the way. At the same time, we have the free report, which was, which was, oh my God. you know, <laughs> the free report was committed uh. by the Penn State trustees, uh, and it was very much in Penn, the trustees' interest, but also in the NCAA's interest to get a report out timed with the conviction of Sandusky, which they pretty much knew would happen, that would justify the precipitous actions of Penn State in getting Spanier fired, getting Paterno fired, discrediting Curley and Schultz. Um, and of course, you you yourself, John, were doing an, in, an investigation at the same time, which was a model of independence and objectivity. You were actually interviewing the people that the Free Commission didn't even bother to interview, and you were coming up with an opposite conclusion to theirs. I'm, quite sure it was a correct conclusion. Exactly. Yeah. So and, and you know, and the conduct at the trial, it was just so obvious that the judge was completely on the side of the prosecution. And it must be said that Sandusky's uh, lead, lead attorney did an extremely incompetent job so much to, to, to such a degree that some people think that he really believed that Sandusky was guilty, actually guilty. Oh my God! Oh my God! No real sense of Sandusky. In his opening statement, he had half conceded that Sandusky was guilty. Ay ay ay! It's uh, a mind-boggling that this can actually take place. 
Um, it's such a, a such an egregious miscarriage of justice. You know, obviously, people really need to uh, sit down and read what you've uh, put together. I mean, it's amazing. I've read it a couple times, and it's just you know you can't you can't put it down because you want to know what happens next. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a real life thing. I did want to ask you. You know, you you touched on Dr. Spanier. I mean, uh, that is an equally uh, egregious uh, miscarriage of justice in the sense that, you know, he's he's not even, uh, you know, involved in, in this. And, uh, you know, the charges are, are not applicable, don't pertain to him. I mean, what's your what's your overall thought on Dr. Uh, Spaniard's uh, uh, prosecution. Well, I've gotten to know him uh, through um, email mostly. Uh, he's a very fine man, and he certainly did nothing wrong in this case. The prosecution, in order to uh, make hay out of the McQuery accusations, um, had to uh, implicate Spanier and his uh, vice president and his uh, athletic coach in covering up the so-called crime of Sandusky with the little boy in the shower. You you mean uh, Tim Curley and Gary uh, Schultz? Curley and Schultz, yeah. Okay. And the, 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 the point is this. McQueary was not convinced that he had seen any, any sexual misbehavior whatsoever, but he was worried about it. So he consulted his father and his father's boss in, in, in a medical business. And they were, they, are, they were quite clear in saying, did you see anything sexual? Did you see anything sexual? And he said, no, 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 I didn't. And they said, well, then, this is, this is not a crime. It does not have to be reported to the police. But maybe you'd better tell Joe Paterno. And McQueary did at some point, which is contested. The exact date is contested. Paterno did exactly what he was supposed to do, which was to talk to Curley and Schultz about it, his superiors in the Penn State hierarchy. And they talked to Spanier. And every single one of them was under the impression that no sexual crime had been reported. None. They called <laughs> They called yeah. it roughhousing. They called it horseplay. <clears throat> but the prosecution had to figure out a way of turning this into a crime. Because if they couldn't turn the cover-up into a crime, then maybe there hadn't been anything to cover up. Right. And of course, as you know, and as you you figured out in a period of, of weeks, really, that exactly that was true. There was nothing to cover up. Yeah. I, I You know, another uh, aspect of this, is uh, you know the the conspiracy charge, and when I mean I had conducted my investigation, and they had the state um, and and Louis Free had no idea that the federal government was there investigating the same case, um, so they came up with their predetermined uh, conclusion with uh, you know using uh, very faulty facts, but I think that. One of the key points is, is that, uh, you know, the Supreme, former Supreme Court justice and current at that point, uh, Office of uh, General Counsel uh, Cynthia Baldwin um, had told me 
specifically about uh, her interaction with Dr. Spanier. And she was very complimentary in regard to Dr. Spanier. And uh, when I asked her more specifics relative to her knowledge of the uh, allegations, um, she, as a former Supreme Court justice, referred me to her attorney. And her attorney, you know, there was some question as to whether or not she was representing Dr. Spanier and uh, uh, Tim Curley, the athletic director, and Gary Schultz, the vice president, um, during the course of that grand jury. And when I was interviewing her, uh, she referred me to her attorney because she didn't feel comfortable asking any or answering any uh, other of my questions um, until the attorney said it was okay. So he calls me, I call, she called him, he calls me and he tells me, um, you just can't ask her anything about the protected period, which is the protected period when she was representing Dr. Spanier, Tim yeah. Curley and Gary Schultz at the, uh, grand jury. Yeah. What? Trouble about that. Exactly. So this this is the other thing. Um, uh, well, incidentally, after that, that conspiracy charge went away. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, and and if you if you look at the dates that 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 occurred, it it's very telling as to uh, somebody learning that the federal government was looking into that case. Anyway. Um, my my next thought is, you know, you have Frank Fina. You're familiar with Frank Fina, the uh, the yeah. deputy attorney general from the uh, uh, Pennsylvania Attorney General's office, and his, uh, you know, he he was brought before the uh, office of disciplinary uh, counsel and found, uh, you know, to be in violation um, in an administrative standpoint uh where he should be charged criminally anyway he loses his uh law license so he's you know there's a lot of prosecutorial misconduct in this case that can be uh you know clearly uh, clearly defined but what really bothers me is and people don't seem to understand this is that you have various levels of the Pennsylvania judiciary ruling on the case, on appeals on that case, knowing that there was prosecutorial misconduct in that case. What judge in their right mind is not going to say, stop everything, determine what the prosecutorial misconduct was and how it impacted on that case? I mean, how do you feel about that? My my mind explodes when I when I think of a judge ruling on a case, knowing knowing that there's prosecutorial misconduct in the case. Right. Well, judges in Pennsylvania are elected, and so at any given moment, a judge may be um, pulled in the direction that you're talking about now, the direction of justice and a different direction, which is that of getting reelected. Uh, in Pennsylvania, if you mention the word Sandusky in anything but a negative contest, context, you're not going to be reelected to dog catcher. Uh-huh. 
Well, uh, that's that really uh, justice has not been served in this in this case. Clearly, no. I mean, there's a lot of prosecutor prosecutorial uh, entities and investigative entities that uh, clearly went outside the lines, um, and they need to be criminally prosecuted. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's no, there's no question. Just just taking a look at the prosecutorial misconduct would cause a person to, I mean, if they really saw that, if they if they would read and understand what happened in that case, um, the prosecutorial misconduct on its own is exceptionally appalling. Any any one of those incidents of prosecutorial misconduct. A new trial would be uh, granted for an individual. Absolutely. It's just, and, and the other thing I would say is because of the depth of prosecutorial misconduct in this case, that, I mean, myself as a, a, as a federal agent, if I had a case that there was some kind of prosecutorial misconduct involved in it, every case that that prosecutor worked on would be tainted, would yep. be considered tainted. Therefore, everything that uh, the currently disbarred and discredited Frank Fina, every case that he worked on, any prosecutorial uh, effort that was taken um, would be tainted. And every one of those cases should be looked at and reworked. Yeah. You know, one aspect one aspect of this uh, is that when the indictment of of Sandusky came down, it turned out that Curley and Schultz were targets also of the prosecution, and no one could figure out why at first. But uh, it, a reasonable explanation that came to, to light is that they the prosecutors were looking forward to the trial of Sandusky with Curley and Schultz testifying in his defense. Right. Exonerating him in the in the McQuarrie uh, shower incident. Right. So prosecuting Curley and Schultz, uh, Frank Fina neutralizes them and makes them ineligible to be objective witnesses in a forthcoming trial of Sandusky. It's probably a, a, a brilliant, a brilliant move, but it's also ab absolutely evil. Yes, exactly. I mean, you, you cannot you cannot look at this case uh, without that coming to mind. I mean, that's uh, it's an, a completely appalling uh, miscarriage of justice. Well, uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Cruz, how do people find your articles? How would they find the overall Sandusky, the House of Cards? Well, it's really simple because after three years of trying to get stuff published. I have self-published and these articles are up on Medium. So all you have to do, I mean, you could uh, you could Google my name, which is spelled C-R-E-W-S, Frederick, um, or you could Google the titles, Sandusky, the House of Cards, or um, St. Sandusky, question mark. It's very easy to find, very easy to find. Probably if you just put my name up on Google, they would show up. Uh, so that's why that's why they're on medium. They're easy to find, but it would be nicer if they were in some national magazine with, with actual subscribers. 
I think if people really take the time to look through your your articles there, you know, and you've touched on on everything a little bit um, without going into significant depth, but your articles do go into depth, and I think that it's uh, well worth the read. It clearly addresses any any questions that people might have as to whether or not this was a a just process you know well i'm i'm glad to hear you say it but you know i want to interrupt you for a moment i don't want to pretend to be a researcher myself and basically i'm i'm just playing the role of a journalist here just trying to put together information that others have found and so i'd like to state that the real principal investigators of this case are, first of all, you yourself, Mark Pendergrass, Ralph Cipriano, John Ziegler. All of these people are eminently worth reading. And uh, uh, I have a tremendous debt to, to all four of you. Well, I think you've done a terrific job putting it together. Um, and certainly, uh, again, uh, people need to read it. And uh, they can... Uh, they can get to it. As a matter of fact, when I Googled uh, Dr. Frederick Cruz today, that all came up okay. right away. So you're correct. Um, and all all the uh, all our listeners have to do is to type in uh, Frederick Cruz, C-R-E-W-S, and uh, you'll get to Medium and these articles that'll, uh, you know, they're shocking and uh, appalling. I mean, there's not not more any more that you can uh, put on that. You can come to your own conclusion just reading what you've wrote. So, uh, Dr. Cruz, really appreciate you taking the time. We'd like to have you back uh, when when my uh, compatriots are available, mm-hmm. um, and hopefully we'll do that in the extreme near future. Uh, Dr. Cruz, thank you very much. Thank you.